This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Welcome back to Leadership in Action on SiriusXM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Ann Greenhall. I'm here with Jeff Klein, and together we are speaking with George Anders, Senior Editor at Large at LinkedIn and the author of You Can Do Anything, The Surprising Power of a Useless Liberal Arts Education. George, um, before the break, uh, we were talking a little bit about uh, the importance of being openness to experience and willingness to, to explore and to try. I want to come back to the um, what I think are some stereotypes about sure. liberal arts education and professional education. So I'm going to really paint it in broad brushstrokes, and I would like your reaction. My experience, having been an educator here for a long time, is that people tend to think about uh, business and the professions as being uh, as providing an education that's all about problem solving and application solve problems and apply them and the liberal arts education more about developing creative thinking and reflection so first i'd just like your response to that um what i see as a stereotype yeah and broadly i think that's valid and we can find some nuances around the edge that are different and uh i always admire people who are able to get educations in different disciplines and pick up best of both. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I think on the liberal arts side, the emphasis uh, is on asking the right questions. And on the business side, the emphasis is on finding the right answers. And you actually need to do both. And I will argue that sometimes we spend an awful lot of time working hard to answer the wrong questions. And if we back up a little bit and rethink what is it that we really need to know, what are we trying to find out, what are we trying to accomplish? Uh, we travel farther, but you need both. I mean, there's there's validity in in both. Are you do you have one that you want to double down your bets on and cast the other aside, or can can I talk you into making room for each approach? Mm, that's great. Well, th- thank you for saying that. I love I love your turn of phrase of asking qu- questions and finding solutions. And just uh, to be forthcoming, one of my hobby horses, and I have a little bit of grant money behind it is just exploring the degree to which a professional education uh, can help students solve problems, apply solutions, and also develop some creative thinking and reflection. But I'll just, you know, I put that a little bit of a side, at a, um, just to the side to ask you, what is the degree to which that uh, majors are destiny for students? Surprisingly little. I mean, there's good data from the Brookings Institution on this. And, you know, if you go into a um, British or French or uh, Canadian education, um, actually Canada's a little more like us, but most European ones, once you pick your major, that's who you're going to be. And often you go through in three years rather than four. You really Mm -hmm. don't have electives. You're going to take what you were told to take. Uh, And we do allow people to go explore different areas. We allow people to and travel and interdisciplinary paths. So Brookings data looked at, they combined income tax returns and student loan data to be able to track where people went after college, what they were focused on in college, and then um, how it all worked out for them. And I mean, obviously disciplines like history 
you end up all over the map of meeting people in history. Some of them go to law school, some of them become doctors, some of them become politicians, some of them become writers. But you get a pretty similar scatter even for physics majors and chemistry majors. And I think only 7% of chemistry majors actually become industrial chemists. Hmm. And some of them become professors, a lot of them go into medicine, some of them end up in sales. It's kind of surprising. Uh, but I, I think there is that ability to redefine yourself beyond your major. And um, even if your first job doesn't appreciate everything that your well-honed, college-educated mind can do, it doesn't take too long down the road to find places that will, will let you go different spots. And, uh, and so, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. At the, top, at the top of the hour, you mentioned nursing and accounting. Are they more likely to be predictive of future employment? Yeah. Okay. Those, those really are. I think like 70-some percent of people with nursing degrees are quite literally nurses, and the other 29% or so are in some form of healthcare management. Uh, and there might be a few that end up secondary school teachers, but pretty much sign on for a nursing degree, become a nurse. Uh, but, uh, you know, and that's true to some extent with engineering degrees and with finance degrees. But as you start to get into areas like marketing, people will take that a lot of different directions. Certainly the, the classic arts and sciences degrees, uh, people will go all over the map, which is healthy. And some of it is new fields come up beyond what was available when you graduated. Uh, and everything I've done the last 15 years was not going to be available when I got my diploma. <laughs> right. I had to roll with the world, and it's been fun. Uh, so that is kind of the goal of a college education is to prepare you for a world that doesn't yet exist. Mm. Now, uh, one more question for me, then I'm going to hand back to, to Jeff. Uh, if the stereotype is in, is in part true, what is one of what is a selling point of liberal arts education, and that is that it gives the opportunity to develop creativity? What might other selling points be? So I'm going to come back to asking the right questions. Uh, it was interesting for me. I spent some time in, when I was researching the book visiting uh, data analytics teams uh, at you know marketing agencies and uh, Silicon Valley companies. And I was surprised how many English majors I found there. And I asked, what's the deal here? You guys are not known for being incredibly numerate. Uh, and they said, we've now got a level of statistical programs that will basically put all the pie charts on our iPad. Uh, <laughs> we don't have to. We don't have to. Crunch That's what I would need. <laughs> <laughs> it's available. Yeah. Um, but what we do is we tell stories with numbers. And in fact, one of the more fun afternoons I had was tagging along with a um, restaurant relationship manager for Open Table. Open Table, you may know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do. We book our restaurants with. And like any company that gathers huge amounts of data, they then have a whole side business of selling that data back to restaurants and telling them, oh, you know, 13% of people on Valentine's Day are no-shows because they change their plans and they break up. You can afford <laughs> to book a few more tables because, you know, you're otherwise you're going to be left with no one to sit. Um, that's an ex hypothetical example, but it's directionally right. Uh, so the people who do that best are the ones who've got that English major training or psychology or whatever, and they know how to catch the restaurateur in the right mood, and they know how to draw him or her out about how do you think of Valentine's Day? Is this a big day for you? you know, uh, do you ever notice empty tables? And as opposed to just being the data person who says, here's the printout, now you go act on it. And they're dealing with proud people. Anyone who's built up a restaurant is an enormous sense of the right way and the wrong way to do things. Mm -hmm. And they didn't get to be the restaurateur by being indecisive. So it, it takes some work to get them in a listening mode. 
And if you've got those kinds of liberal arts skills, you're going to be good at it. Um, so, yes, the curiosity, critical thinking, but I would put empathy right up yeah, there. Yeah, that's that what I'm hearing. To understand other people. And um, you can get that across the whole spectrum. You can get it from, you know, um, looking at the origin of the Thirty Years' War and why the Catholics and the Protestants didn't get along in the 1600s. You can get it from sociology and going into prisons and trying to figure out what's in the mind of inmates. And uh, pretty much no matter where you go, you're going to be exposed to different kind of people and to really think deeply about what makes them tick. And those are skills that never go away, and those end up being really useful in a lot of business settings. Very good. Jeff? So, George, I, I, I'd love to um, you know, get, continue this conversation around um, the skills and, and how those match to career paths. Uh, you know, we've, we've had some different examples of liberal arts majors who are you know, moving into uh, you know, kind of established sorts of roles. Um, did you find any relationship between liberal arts majors and entrepreneurs and startup founders uh, while, while you I did this? I did, research? and I'm so glad you asked. So I <laughs> sat down with the Inc. 5000 list of um, you know, the fastest-growing little companies mm-hmm. and looked up the majors, and I didn't analyze all 5,000, but I went reasonably deep in the list. And about a third of the companies had liberal arts majors in some role or another. And um, I'll, I'll need to make sure I get the details on this right. But there were a handful of companies that all set up the idea of um, some version of paint night where you come into a bar or a restaurant or whatever, and you're then given some basically painting lessons. Mm-hmm. And you learn how to do a, you know, a, a nice watercolor of a bowl of fruit or flowers or something. And it ended up being kind of popular as a, you know, bachelorette party um, notion or a, you know, a family event or it, it, it took on a social dimension. And the company that did the best on this was founded by someone who was a liberal arts major. And all the other companies focused on how do we get booked in the right restaurants. And the liberal arts major said, we're not really selling the restaurant. We're selling the coaching and teaching experience. Mm-hmm. And they paid up to get really good instructors and they found that if the instructor was persuasive, people recommended it to their friends. <laughs> you could make all kinds of venues work. I mean, as long as the venue wasn't awful, people didn't really remember whether the napkins were paper or cloth or, right, right. you know, whether the chairs were comfortable. They remembered that sense of this person taught me how to become a better painter than I, I knew I could be. And they made it fun. Or, wow, this person was kind of pedantic and insulting of us. And I couldn't wait to get out of there because it just wasn't working. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, how do you know the difference of what you're really selling? I mean, you can be in business school and be taught everything about how to model, you know, revenue per seat and number of seats and number of turns. But in the end, uh, that ability to look at the business differently and say, how do we just make this really exciting and interesting for people? Right. Um, sometimes the numbers take care of themselves if you get the key selling proposition right. And I would argue that People with a, a liberal arts background sometimes are really good at seeing opportunities that the rest of us miss. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a, a great point. And I, as we think about the role that liberal arts majors can play within um, within organizations, I wonder, and I, I know you devote some, uh, a, at least a chapter of, to this topic in the book, um, who are the employers that really get this? 
Um, and what are the ways in which they are, you know, trying to attract liberal arts majors into their organizations? So this is really interesting because the, the key insight that I found was if someone early on in the company's history had come in with an unexpected major and then had done really well, a whole new level of pattern matching gets established. Mm -hmm. And the thinking is, oh, Don Phillips was a philosophy major and he ended up you know, being a senior vice president. We should think about philosophy majors. And sometimes yeah. it's that simple. So the, the example that I open that chapter with is Morningstar Research, which is the Chicago outfit that began as a mutual funds data um, specialty firm, and now they do a whole bunch of stock research, bond research, and um, sort of guide investment portfolios and the like. But anyway, it's a wide variety of financial services. Uh, the founder there, Joe Mansueto, was a University of Chicago graduate, and for anyone who's a Thoreau fan listening, you might have heard that word Morningstar, and you go, aha, hmm. that's the closing line of Walden Pond, and, you know, the sun is but a morning star. And he, you know, he read the novel as a freshman, which is the best time to have new ideas imprinted on your still <laughs> malleable brain, and goes, Morningstar would be a great name for a company. So that's what he named it. And they are infused with very much of a, a liberal arts uh, take. They end up hiring a lot of English majors, divinity majors, what have you. Uh, there are two reasons. First of all, when the company was small, they found they could hire quite good people for quite low salaries because <laughs> if you've been trying to make a living with a divinity major, you know, the notion of getting $48,000 a year, you go, wow, all <laughs> right. that for me? <laughs> right. and, and if you're trying to hire a Wharton finance graduate, <laughs> you, you can't get them to take that offer quite as, as you know, proudly and seriously. Uh, but beyond that, they found that uh, a lot of their jobs involved writing, and these were people who wrote well. They involved people who could think creatively. They involved people who could present well in video and on TV. And it was a rich, interesting pool of people. And I remember going there, and you know, they have it's a multi-stories in a downtown Chicago um, building. And one of the nicest places is this sort of two-story open atrium, and at the top story is the library. Hmm. And they've got a bunch of books, some of which relate to finance and some of which are just literature. It's nice armchairs, and you can sit there and look out. And you can see a little bit of Lake Michigan. And I'm going, okay, you know, in, in that way that design sometimes reveals a lot about a place's culture. If your showcase thing is the library, this is a place for people who like to read and people who like to think. Um, so it was a wonderful example, and I you know, had to tear myself away and start including others because you know, <laughs> it's as much fun as it was to hang out there. <laughs> yeah, the, the book needs to be more than a tribute to a single example. But um, what I found in some of the top consulting firms, again, appreciate the um, creative habits and sort of the careful research that you can get from a lot of the liberal arts. Uh, McKinsey, Bain, BCG tend to hire their fair share of, of liberal arts graduates. And obviously in media, uh, that's sort of home territory. And, you know, what else would you expect publishing houses to do but, but hire a lot of people who, who've been writing? Um, State Department, um, at least historically, has tended to hire a lot of liberal arts graduates. And their main State Department exam is this, you know, marvelous tour through all sorts of knowledge. And you have to identify a quote as to whether you think it's Fitzgerald or Hemingway, and hmm. you have to, um, you know, be, be up to date on you know, elements of world history. And they're, they're really looking for well-rounded intellects. 
So there are a bunch of places that do appreciate uh, what a liberal arts degree can do, but obviously there's some others that uh, if they don't have that element in their DNA of liberal arts majors doesn't make good, it's harder for them to do it. Um, I would notice an aside that I see something very similar on veterans hiring. Hmm. In organizations where veterans have done well, open the doors wide to more veterans. Hmm. In organizations where that hasn't happened, they have a much harder time retooling their hiring processes so that very different backgrounds and presenting styles of veterans are appreciated. Hmm. Yeah, that's a nice point. And let me remind everyone that you're listening to Leadership in Action. I'm Ann Greenhall here with Jeff Klein. And together we're talking with George Anders, author, If You Can Do Anything, The Surprising Power of a Useless Liberal Arts Education. George, we, we have a little bit of time left, and I'd like to turn the tables a bit to uh, listeners who are out in the audience and applying for jobs. And now I'm, I think you can offer some good advice to recent grads, but also to those of us who might be interested in changing organizations or changing careers. Are, are you looking actively, <laughs> Anne? Is this a weird way of I was of going to tell know? you after the show, okay, but good. I decided to tell you during the show. <laughs> I'm, I'm empathetic. <laughs> Thank you. No, I'm not going. So, I hope so not to go not anywhere. This is not just a radio program. It's the placement agent. <laughs> it is, exactly. <laughs> it's really just our therapeutic our th- time. Exactly. Every week, <laughs> very, very therapeutic. So, George, what would, what would you advise to, we'll start with recent grads. So I've got two big ideas, and they actually work at a bunch of different stages in in one's career. Uh, The first is to make full use of what I call the hidden job market. And one of the frustrations about modern-day job hunts is we've made it very easy to turn in a resume. You can now do it automatically. You don't have to mail it. And, you know, boom, click, send, and there it is. And the result is that a lot of jobs end up attracting 200 or more resumes. Right. And if you don't come with a referral you're going to end up in that middle zone of people that they either give your resume, you know, six-second scan and then toss it into the no, or just as bad, you get put into the maybe pool. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you're always at risk that there's someone who has more of an in than you do, or even though you meet every single credential, there's someone who's triply overqualified who gets it instead of you. Uh, and that's the hard way to get a job. So and I have data yeah. uh, from Lever Inc., which is a uh, HR data firm, and one of every 152 resumes turns into a job in the sample they looked at. It's just kind of terrifying not to me. Right. You send in 60 resumes and people don't take you. You think it's a snub on you. No, you're actually pre- performing exactly as the data would tell you. Uh, so what, what can you do to improve your situation? And uh, the first thing you can do is try and come in with a referral. And not only come in with a referral, but use that referral to open a job that doesn't yet exist. Hmm. And I have a whole chapter about how to create your own job. And that ability to strike up a conversation with someone that you might have met via a informational interview or via a college connection, a recent alum who you've tracked down who graduated in the same field as you or is working at a company that interests you. A lot of times those early chats can then turn into something where you go, okay, I see what your skills are. Here are some of the areas that we haven't staffed up in yet. Would you be interested in helping us build here? Mm. To which, of course, the answer is yes. And then you have successfully completed a job hunt in which there was one job and one candidate. You're the one candidate. Mm. Uh, So I, I take people 
through some examples of how people did that with startups, did it with the State Department, did it in other settings, but very much that ability to reach out, find people who might be helpful, and I get into some very tactical stuff of how to use administrative people or how to use a single job ad that's not quite what you want, but you get in and then see if there's someone else who will hire you for different job. There's, there's lots of small grain tactics here, and the, the show is not the perfect forum to mm-hmm. try and go through all of them and customize them. But basic idea here is um, look for jobs that haven't been posted yet. Look for people who might be likely to hire you once you give them a chance to know who you are. And that flows directly into the second point, which I think if you have a non-technical background, it's extra crucial to be able to tell your story in a way that makes you engaging and appealing. And people go, you know what? That's that's just too appealing for me to send you out into the street. We should make this work. Yeah. Can you give so, one example fact, of that? I, <laughs> I've read some it. in your book. They're really wonderful. Uh, so Bridget Connolly, international relations graduate from Stanford, stuck without a job nine months after graduation. She goes into WikiHow, which is a online question and answer um, explanation site, and they were looking to globalize. And she had come in actually for a different job that she was borderline qualified for. But during her college days, she'd done volunteer work in South Africa. Uh, She'd done some work in Peru. Um, She then started to tell the story of being on vacation in Indonesia and wanting to do a documentary about coral reefs. She spoke not a word of Indonesian. She was there purely for holiday. So she got someone to teach her the phrase, tell me about the coral reefs. And then would go to interview fishermen and ask them one question, hold up the mic, get the answer, bring the tape, the audio back to the States and get someone to translate it. And <laughs> essentially, without knowing a word of Indonesian, she had conducted rudimentary interviews in Indonesian and had the material <laughs> she needed for a documentary. And they're looking at, oh, my God, we have to internationalize in 16 different markets. You know, we need someone who can make this happen in Holland. We need someone who can make it happen in Japan. There's no one who has all the languages. And without ever having written a job description, they go, you know what? Someone who can BS their way through Indonesian to make a documentary (laughs) is exactly the kind of person you want. And she's not going to be that expensive to hire. And she wants to do it. (laughs) <laughs> uh, and in fact, they, they offer her the job. She represents that she has better Excel skills than she does in her first few spreadsheets are a bit of a mess, but she stays late. She learns it and she goes on to be a star. And I love that story for a bunch of reasons. I love it because you've got the, uh, someone showing the nerve to put their hand up for a job that they aren't perfectly qualified for, but mm-hmm. they can learn. And you've got an employer that says, hey, here's a offbeat story from your personal life that actually speaks to your work ethic. Um, and then you get this pairing and good things happen. So the key takeaway from that is go through your own life and figure out what do I have that's a great resiliency story? What do I have that's a great initiative story? And it can come from, you know, my student work. It can come from my, you know, part-time jobs. It can come from my earlier jobs. It can come from vacations. It can come from civic and social and volunteer work, church work, whatever. But figure out a way to make yourself seem like that kind of spunky, energetic, optimistic, can-do person. And, um, you know, but address the way you've, you know, stared failure in the face and beaten it back, that uh, you don't just need to brag about yourself. And, uh, in fact, I did a parallel exercise here at LinkedIn where I asked college students to create videos that um, – spoke to, you know, common questions.
scholarship, that kind of thing, and then showed them to top-tier recruiters. And the ones who impressed the recruiters the most were not the ones who claimed to have cured cancer or, you know, written, created their own startups. There were people who did simple things like work in a hardware store and learn how to be a specialist in five different areas or, you know, someone who, you know, did a summer job at Chuck E. Cheese and managed to keep, you know, family parties from turning into total hellish chaos. (laughs) Tell it well and employers will like you. So it is a performance, but there's no reason as a liberal arts grad where you, you know, for heaven's sake, you've spoken in seminars, if you've taken theater classes, if you've, you know, done anything that has a demonstrative quality you should be very at home at selling yourself. Oh, George, I really want to thank you so very much for speaking about your book. Thanks for the chance to do this. It was a lot of fun. I can't believe the hour has gone by so quickly. <laughs> That's great. Thank you, George. Thank you. And just for our listeners, once again, George Anders, uh, the author of the book right in front of me, I've read it, You Can Do Anything. But let me also add that he's written five other books, including Merchants of Debt, Health Against Wealth, the New York Times bestseller, Perfect Enough, The Rare and the Rare Find. So purchase the book. (laughs) It's very good. All right, Jeff, just one minute, quick recap on our two guests. We had in the first hour, of course, Jennifer Dulski, who wrote the book Purposeful, and second hour, George Anders, who wrote the book You Can Do Anything. Well, two great guests tonight, and and two conversations that may be a little different on their face, but um, had a lot of you know, common threads. The one I'll highlight is just the role of story. And, you know, oh, I, I think, like I think what Jennifer talked about is, you know, the, the leaders who are going to really make change are the folks that have a story and they have a destination in mind. And, and I think George, we just heard him celebrate the power of story as, as a way to find yourself that role that might be non-traditional. So good. And if I may add to that, the willingness to take a risk and explore. Jennifer took a position that looked to be two steps down the notch, uh, you know, a demotion and loss of pay, and it turned out to be the best choice that she ever met. And George, of course, incurring, encouraging all of us to take a risk and explore. So I want to thank all of you for joining us tonight, and I'd like to thank our guests, Jennifer Dulski and George Anders. I'd also like to thank our producer, Patty Hall, and our sound engineer tonight, who do we have here tonight? Dion. That's Dion. Yeah, Dion. Dion. Yay. <laughs> I'm Ann Greenhall, and I'm here tonight with Jeff Klein, and you are listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. Come back next week. Good night. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 